Hi, I'm Sarah Reif, and today we're with Lana Cohen, and we've got two very special guests who are going to talk to us about health and education. In the first half of the hour, we'll hear from Dr. William Miller, who is the Chief of Staff at the Mendocino Coast District Hospital, and the, um, he's in charge of infection control. He writes a weekly blog with Fort Bragg City Manager Tabitha Miller called The Miller Report about COVID and its impacts on civic and healthy life. And um, he also calls in regularly to the Rogalski Report for our listeners on the coast. And he's also been a consultant with the Fort Bragg Unified School District about their reopening plans, which they were working on really, really hard back when we were in the red tier. And um, we saw you on the Fort Bragg Unified School District board meeting. So thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Miller. Well, you're very welcome. Thank you for asking me. Yeah, and in, in the second half of the show, we'll talk a little bit more specifically about education with our second guest, Michelle Hutchins, who's the superintendent of the Mendocino County Office of Education. But let's start with you, Dr. Miller. Can you talk about how you got started consulting with the Fort Bragg Unified School District and, and your work with helping to keep students and teachers and staff safe during this time? Sure, and uh, just a, a quick little correction. It's not the Mendocino Coast District Hospital anymore. It's now Adventist Health Mendocino Coast Hospital. So I've been very involved in this pandemic uh, since it began when we started back in February getting ready and certainly hit the ground in March. Um, I was part of our initial uh, response and we've done a huge amount of planning and and response to this uh, outbreak since the very beginning and I've been very involved in that and early on as you point out uh, I started writing this uh, weekly column for the newspaper and other uh, blogs to use called the Miller Report, trying to help keep our community abreast of what's going on locally. I know that everybody can Google what's going on nationally, but uh, trying to be an, uh, a mechanism for people locally to understand what's going on, and and I think also to help um, deal with some of the fear uh, that goes along with this uh, by providing accurate information. So about uh, two months ago or so, uh, Becky Walker, who's the superintendent of schools at Fort Bragg, uh, reached out to me and asked me if I would be willing to help provide some education to the teachers around COVID, which I have been doing. And also then that led to um, acting as a consultant for the school district board. So I've, I've been uh, answering their questions and doing the best I can to provide information. And has that been mostly information about, you know, the, um, the updates on the vaccine and, and general health tips? Or, or have you also been, been helping them figure out how to, how to open up again and, and what level of risk they can expect and how to mitigate things? It's all of the above. Uh, a lot of it is talking about personal protective equipment. I have done a number of uh, seminars, if you will, with teachers and other staff on exactly what SARS-2, which is the virus that causes COVID-19, is, how it's transmitted, how it's not transmitted, how we can protect ourselves. Uh, I have reviewed their policies um, around trying to reopen. 
trying to help them make sure that those policies are uh, consistent and following the guidelines of the state health department and the Mendocino uh, County Health Department as well. And I just want to take a moment to remind our listeners that um, in about 10 or 15 minutes, we're going to open up the phone line. So if you have questions for Dr. Miller, you can call in as well. Um, the number for that is 895-2324, 895-2448. The, the other number is our pledge drive number, and that's over. So I got a, a little behindhand there. What's been the kind of feedback that you've gotten from parents and um, and students, if any, about your your advice to the schools for this? Well, the feedback that I received is mostly from the teachers and staff. I haven't spoken to students or parents directly, uh, but the feedback that I've had from the staff has been pretty much a hundred percent of the feedback I've received has been very positive. They're really appreciative of uh, getting that information. I don't have a particular agenda other than just uh, trying to share information. I, I am, I'm glad that I'm not <laughs> in a position where I have to make tough decisions such as whether the school reopens or not. I, I know that the, the school board has been grappling with that, as has um, Becky Walker, and I know that those are very difficult things. Uh, we have to balance the safety and protection of staff, teachers, patients, excuse me, patients, <laughs> that's a Freudian slip there, uh, students <laughs> and uh, their families, balance all of that with the impact that this is all having on our social structures, our economy, etc. And certainly it plays out very heavily when, it, when we're talking about returning to school. I have expressed many times that my biggest concern is for high school students who are in a time in their life when they're trying to get ready potentially to go on to things like college and uh, how is this going to impact their preparedness for college. So these are all very difficult things that we're trying to balance in a difficult time. Right. And how do you think about the the risk balance? Of course, I think we all understand that there's nothing we can do that's 100% safe. I mean, we're here all on Zoom, and we've got plexiglass in between us, and we're masked up. And What level of risk do you think is, is acceptable? Of course, you know, not wanting to take any risk, but knowing that, that there is going to be some and that we can't be 100% percent safe, but we don't want to just throw grandma and grandpa under the bus? Well, I think that's kind of a loaded question the way you phrased it, but uh, since you said what do I think, personally, uh, I think that if, if we reopened our schools and students are wearing masks and teachers are wearing masks and everybody's washing their hands, I personally think that the risk is very minimal and acceptable. Uh, this virus is not novel when it comes to how it's spread. We know very well how this thing is spread because we get coronaviruses going through the community every year. This is not the first coronavirus. Um, the previous winter we had probably about four, I believe, coronaviruses go through and they cause the common cold. Uh, SARS-2, this particular virus, is spread exactly like these other coronaviruses that cause the common cold. What is novel and challenging about this particular virus, which makes it um, uh, a problem, 
is what it does in our body when it gets into our body. And that is that it induces a very profound immune reaction that is really kind of over the top, if you will. And it's largely that immune reaction that causes the damage to our lungs and other organs. That's what makes it novel. So if we keep that in mind, then it becomes a lot more uh, understandable and easier. It's not as scary if we realize that this is, as far as transmission is concerned, the same as other viruses of, of that nature. And we know, therefore, that the primary way that this is spread is through respiratory droplets. That is the vast majority of transmission uh, of cases in the United States have been through respiratory droplets. Uh, second to that, uh, and probably far down, a far down second, is through surfaces. Uh, aerosols do not play a significant role in transmission in the community. And I know that's a controversial statement. There are a lot of, I mean, if you Google it, there's a lot of people who think that aerosols do play a significant role. But that's not what the, what the evidence really supports. Uh, aerosol spread, which is different than respiratory droplet spread, is a, a big issue in healthcare settings, such as dentist's offices, where they have those high-speed drills and things like that in, in your mouth, or in the hospital where we do procedures that actually do generate aerosols. I'm not saying that no aerosol is ever generated by speaking, for example. Yes, there are, you know, you can go into the laboratory and find uh, lab studies that show that some aerosols are created. But that's n not the same as then going out in the real world and saying, yes, but does that constitute a significant source of transmission? And in the real world, the answer is no. And there have been a number of very important uh, epidemiologic studies regarding this virus, which have shown conclusively that if both parties are wearing a mask, this is not transmitted. And uh, I'm reminded of the, of the uh, case that came out in the MMWR, which is the weekly report from the CDC, of two hairdressers, I believe they were in Missouri, who uh, both became sick. They had symptoms. They decided to get tested. They got tested. Uh, and it took eight days. This was back in late March, so it was taking a while to get the results. And it took them eight days to get the results back. During those eight days, they decided to continue to see clients. And they saw uh, 136 clients between the two of them. Uh, the, this means that these hairdressers were touching the faces and heads of their clients, certainly within six feet distance. Uh, the minimum contact was 15 minutes. The maximum was 45 minutes. And in all cases, both the clients and the hairdressers were wearing masks. 50% of the clients were wearing homemade cloth masks. 50% were wearing the disposable medical-grade mask. And two were wearing N95s. The number of transmissions that occurred during that, that those eight days was zero. Not a single client came down with COVID-19. However, the families of the hairdressers did come down with COVID-19, indicating that these people were, in fact, contagious. That is really compelling evidence. Regardless of what you do in the laboratory, in the real life, 
epidemiologic studies can help guide our decisions. And that's just one example. I can give you many, but I know we don't have time to go through them all. But that's one very powerful example that masks do work. They are effective. And I want to touch in on some of the behavioral stuff that that you mentioned um, or that's going on here. The vast majority of our cases in Mendocino County are in the Ukiah Valley. I think it's it's over a thousand of our, our more than thirteen hundred known cases, um, and very comparatively few on the the coast and in the rest of the county. And our, of course, our health officer has told us that that it's largely because of the large concentration of population here in the Ukiah Valley. But do you think that there might also be some behavioral cues that people in the Ukiah Valley could take from folks in the, the rest of the parts of the county. Right now, we are definitely seeing cases uh, starting to, to pop up here on the coast and throughout the county. Uh, we are fortunate that so far Mendocino County is not looking like some other parts of the country. And I think the fact that we are not as bad off as other parts of the country stems from the fact that we have, for the most part, been pretty dang good about wearing our masks. And I really want to thank everybody for that. I know that that's unpleasant. There's a lot of personal um, decisions that go into that. Uh, and I want to thank everybody in this community for wearing masks. I know that people have been doing that and it's inconvenient. I appreciate it. That has really helped more than anything else us avoid having our hospitals overrun with cases. However, we are absolutely starting to see cases here on the coast, for example. Uh, in the last week or two, we're, we're diagnosing uh, two to five new cases a day. Uh, and we are definitely starting to see some pockets of outbreak. It is my opinion that a lot of this has to do with family gatherings. Uh, when I've looked at the little pockets of outbreak that I at least am aware of, uh, they are from family gatherings. People either travel uh, outside the area to visit grandma or aunts and uncles come into our community. And let's face it, we're, we're you know, when we're with our loved ones like that, we're not going to be wearing a mask. We're going to take our mask off and hug each other and be close, and we're going to share meals because that's what we do as humans. And so when these fa family gatherings happen, we're, we're, we've let our guard down, we've taken off our mask, and boom. You know, people go back to where they came from, and then about three days later, somebody gets a phone call. Oh, gee, you know, and and. Emmy is uh, sick, and she just got tested, and it's positive, so now you all need to get tested. And everybody gets tested, and lo and behold, people are infected. So it's really, in my opinion, what is really, what I am seeing at least, is that most of what we're dealing with right now are family gatherings. So when you ask me what kind of behavioral changes people should make, my strong request is, look, do not go anywhere Thanksgiving, don't go anywhere for Christmas, stay put, and don't invite your family here. And I know that's a terrible, heartbreaking thing to hear. It breaks my heart to say. But if we want our loved ones to be around for next year's Christmas, then we need to just stay put. 
it is it's when we start traveling around that we stir up the pot and transmission occurs and I want to let our listeners know that we will open up the phone lines if you have a question for Dr. Miller. It's 895-2448. And Dr. Miller, in your most recent Miller report, you wrote that you've previously been a little bit skeptical about coronavirus vaccines, but that yes. the current ones are are um, making you a little more hopeful. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, and let me say, first of all, let me apologize. There was a big error in that. Uh, the two vaccines that uh, I wrote that the two vaccines had received FDA approval, and that was a mistake. That is not what happened. Um, I, I misunderstood what I was reading. What has happened is that those two uh, vaccines, the one by Pfizer and the one by Moderna, have completed their phase three trials and therefore are ready to be um, to undergo the process of approval. So they have applied for emergency approval. Um, other, we have historically not been able to produce an effective vaccine against coronaviruses historically, and it was based on that history and the and what was being done with the early vaccine attempts uh, back in March that made me quite skeptical as to whether we would have anything that was more than, say, 30% effective. Uh, Anthony Fauci just uh, a few days ago said that he was hoping that we would have a vaccine that was at least 70% effective. Uh, well, these two vaccines appear to be about 94 92 to 94% effective. Effective being defined as that they are stimulating an immune response where antibodies are being produced and those antibodies are similar to or the same as an the antibodies in convalescent serum. So we all know or maybe people know that there is a treatment involving taking uh, serum from patients who have survived a serious uh, infection of COVID and, uh, and isolating their antibodies and injecting those antibodies into, an, into another patient, which that's nothing new. That's what gamma globulin is. We used to give that when people go traveling abroad and stuff. Um, so convalescent serum is giving somebody somebody else's antibodies. And these two vaccines are producing in your body, if you get vaccinated, the same antibodies that are being given when we give somebody an infusion of convalescent serum. So that is very powerful. And we can talk about why these vaccines, these new vaccines are different, uh, but they use a different technology, which is pretty new for vaccinations. Yeah. But I am very, very encouraged by it. Uh, I know that a lot of people have talked about the temperatures. Uh, the fact that uh, the Pfizer vaccine requires... Um, I believe it's minus 70 degrees Celsius, which is minus 112 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, yeah, that's pretty cold. But there are other vaccines that also require that uh, degree of being cold. Um, I think that the Moderna vaccine, uh, they, they chose a, uh, a warmer temperature, minus 20, which is minus 4 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, I think they chose that uh, actually more for marketing, frankly, than than any other reason because the two vaccines are very similar and and the companies have chosen what temperature to recommend it be kept at. Right. 
And since you mentioned FDA approval and um, many of the teachers in um, the Ukiah School District and a few of the other districts will be getting uh, take-home self-administered tests. Um, yes. And there are a few scams out there and a, a few things that are real. So can you differentiate a little bit between what's been FDA approved in terms of, of um, testing yourself at home and what has not? Yes. Yeah, so most of the, the take-home tests that you do at home are tests that are called um, are, are called antigen tests, and without getting too terribly technical, antigens are the proteins on the surface of the virus. Uh, these tests are not particularly powerful. Uh, you have to have a pretty significant viral load in the person's nose in order to pick up enough of the protein for the for the antigen test to detect it. So those are going to be your people who are infected but asymptomatic and are about to become symptomatic. So at the end of incubation, incubation being two to four days long, those are your people who, will, who would get a positive are the people who are uh, really at the end of that incubation or the first couple of days, maybe three or four days of actually being symptomatic. That's when the viral load is the highest, and that's when your chance of an, of an antigen test is most likely to turn positive. I believe the CVS test is, is an antigen test. Um, this, these are the antigen tests. They're not super, super powerful, and as a result, they have a very high false negative rate. So the CDC is recommending that if anybody has an antigen test, and it's negative, and they still believe that they may have it, have COVID, they need to then have a PCR test. And if the PCR test is also negative, then they're negative. Um, the PCR tests are for actual genetic material of the virus. This virus happens to be RNA. It's an RNA virus. Our, our genetic material is DNA. Many viruses are DNA. This happens to be an RNA virus. Uh, what happens with a PCR test, polymerase chain reaction, is that uh, we use the same enzymes that are used in a cell when it divides. When a cell divides, it has to make a duplicate copy of its genetic material. So we use that to actually amplify the number of copies. So I know I'm getting kind of technical, but think of it this way. Let's say that we swab somebody's nose and there are only 10 virus particles in that swab. Then we put it through PCR and we make a million or 10 million copies. We actually have literally, it's millions of times off of every single copy of that genetic material, we can make a million more copies. Now the signal that you're looking for with your probe has gone from just 10 copies to 10 million. It is so much easier then to detect because you now have got a, 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 a massive number of, of the target. And so that's the reason why PCR is so incredibly powerful and, and why the PCR test is so much more reliable and valuable. Uh, then there's also, pe people always ask, well, what about the antibody test? Well, the antibody test, of course, is a blood test that you have to have. And uh, and they have not been all that promising. 
there's a lot of cross-reactivity in these antibody tests, and the fact that somebody has, an, has a positive antibody does not necessarily mean that they actually had this particular coronavirus. It might have been one of the other ones that caused the common cold in the past. It does not necessarily mean that they're immune either. And I think a lot of people think, well, I'll just get an antibody test, and if I'm positive to the antibody, then I don't have to worry. I must be immune. And that's not necessarily true. So, for example, at our hospital, we're not even offering the antibody test because we don't think it's very reliable. And you've treated a lot of the COVID patients on the coast. Have you had any patients who look like they might be long haulers? So yes, I have. Uh, we had an outbreak here, as many of you know, in our no- local nursing home, Sherwood Oaks, and that outbreak was getting pretty much out of control for a while. Uh, and we were able to work with the leadership of that uh, nursing home to develop a plan in which we brought all of the patients that were positive to our hospital and isolated them here, so that we could keep them from. Um, exposing other patients in the nursing home. And that, amongst other things, played a really significant role in stopping that outbreak. I'm very proud of what we did. I'm very proud of our nurses and the nurses at the nursing home, too. They did a fantastic job. Um, patients did, by and large, very well. Uh, there, were, uh, there were deaths, but uh, we of the patients that we brought into our hospital, Uh, which I believe, if I remember correctly, were 19 total at the end. I helped take care of about 14 of those. Um, Not a single one died in the hospital, and I think that's quite remarkable. Um, Now, one of those people, one of those patients, did die about two weeks later of a sudden cardiac arrest. And we have certainly saw up in Seattle in their experience that there were people who seemed to recuperate and be doing well, who suddenly died. Uh, So it's possible that this person died of a late event, which is what you're alluding to, or it's possible that he just had a heart attack uh, because he was elderly. Uh, I don't know and will never know, but we did, but the the county health department did count him as a COVID death. And so uh, there were a total, if I recall correctly, of eight uh, related COVID deaths from that outbreak. Uh, I have been in frequent conversation with Dr. John Cottle, who is their medical director. He's a fantastic physician, and I really appreciate uh, the work that he's been doing uh, over at Sherwood Oaks. And it's my understanding from him that all of those patients that have sur- that did survive are doing very well and not showing any signs of uh, persisting illness. Well, that sounds like a, a really positive note to end on. So thank you so much for all your work and for, for taking the time to share your, your work and your, your thoughts and some of your research with us here on KZYX today. You're very welcome. Um, I guess there's no callers calling in with questions, but you asked some good questions. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I um, got to have you all to ourselves here on KZYX today, so I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Okay. Well, now we're going to switch to a pre-recorded piece that Lana Cohen put together, um, some interviews that she did with teachers and students, and then we will interview Michelle Hutchins, who is the superintendent of the Mendocino County Office of Education, and we'll bid adieu to Dr. Miller and switch to our, our recorded segment.
How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me before what I'm sure is another busy, busy school day. Yeah, they all are. (laughs) Yeah, I don't have any personal experience teaching, but my mom's a teacher, and I can see how hard it is to teach, and especially teach science, which is such a hands-on topic over Zoom. I was hoping you would start by introducing yourself, um, your name, and your position at Mendocino High School. My name is May Martin, and I am a science teacher at Mendocino High School. I teach uh, physics, earth science, chemistry, and astronomy. And this is my second year teaching, and I actually grew up in Mendocino, so I went to Mendocino High School, um, and I moved back to the area to take this job. So I've returned returned home a little bit, and yeah, it's kind of crazy that this is just my second year teaching and all this has happened, so it's hard to compare what a normal first or second year of teaching might have been like. That's really crazy that it's only your second year. I mean, everyone was thrown into this, especially teachers, but for you, that's just like just so much newness all at once. Could you tell me a little bit about how your students are doing during all of this, at least from what you can see? I think I think it's kind of there's sort of two sides to the coin. I, I've been really impressed with how much students are showing up and engaging and trying. Um, I think they really want to have some kind of school experience and to keep learning and engaging with each other. And it's been definitely been hard. Um, I think that the teaching aspect is obviously really different, and I think teachers are shifting the focus a lot. I think things that we took for granted, sort of like the community in the classroom, we're all now having to be a lot more intentional and spend a lot more time trying to develop online because we know how important it is for students in order to to be successful sort of academically, but also the sort of like emotional, social-emotional parts. And it's kind of hard to tell how students are doing because we don't really have a lot of one-on-one interaction, and that's where that would come out. Students don't like to <laughs> share a whole lot on Zoom when everyone else is, is right there listening. And so we sort of miss a lot of that like classroom one-on-one time where we can just check in with students. So I think um, I think it's affecting people really differently. A lot of it depends on their home life and sort of how much stability they have there. But I kind of think there's a whole range. And um, I think as this continues and even like maybe once we go back to in-person schooling, I think we're going to see sort of the effects more than we can right now because it's hard to have perspective. As time goes on and it becomes clearer that schools aren't going to open up very soon, do you notice the kids getting any pandemic or remote schooling fatigue? I think students are just accepting that this is the way that it is. Um, I don't think they like it. And I every once in a while, I will get to see a student like in person or more one-on-one and um it does seem like there's a little bit of a facade when we're in class that, like, kind of everything's okay. And then when you get students more one-on-one, they always express how hard it is and how they just want to be back in school and see their friends and play sports and, like, 
participate in clubs and like all of these social things that they don't get anymore. So I think, you know, people are obviously really adaptable. So these young kids are able to just sort of kind of accept that this is the way that it is. But I think it's been really, it's been really hard on them. What's one part of remote learning that's been especially challenging for you? Um, I think, well, the challenging part has definitely been, I mean, in science, you know, there are a lot of hands-on activities, and I'm teaching chemistry right now, which you can't do any labs. So I think trying to figure out how to make science interesting and engaging has been really hard. So I've felt like I've had to sort of be the driving force and kind of like the centerpiece and the focus of class, whereas if I'm in person, you know, it's really all about like what the students are doing and their process. Are there particular parts of remote learning that you think are more challenging for students than others? Um, There are certain students who do really struggle with kind of the organization and just not being in person and having someone like check in on them more regularly. I have a couple students who um, who just like forget to press the turn in button on Google Classroom and then like, you know, they have 10 missing assignments even though they did them. Um, and they just like haven't been taught those skills and all of a sudden we're expecting them to be able to like, you know, totally manage themselves online. And a lot of them like have younger siblings that they're also taking care of. So it can just be this like pretty crazy amount of expectations that we're putting on them. Um, whereas if they were in the classroom, it was, it's just a lot simpler. Do you think students are absorbing the same amount of material as they would in person? I mean, one of the big problems is how easy it is for students to use the internet for whatever work it is that they're doing. So even if it's like, you know, whether or not you want to call it cheating, um, it's just harder. It's It's harder to know what students actually know and what they're just sort of finding online or on other resources. So that like kind of assessment of how they're actually doing can be can be hard. I think I'm actually been surprised how much I feel like students are learning even given this weird format. As it becomes clear that schools aren't going to open at least in the near future and that this is kind of a more long-term solution than I think anyone expected. Is there anything you want to do to make remote learning more sustainable? Well, something that we were doing last year when we first went into distance learning mode was we would send out kind of hard packets to pretty much all students. And so, and this year we haven't been doing that. Everything's been online where, you know, we've bought, the district has bought internet for families that didn't have good enough internet or who didn't have internet. So there's just this huge focus of like everything has to be digital, everything has to be online. You know, we're in these Zoom classes for an hour every day. And I think for me, I am going to shift, even, you know, this semester, I want to start doing like sending things home to students more, even if it's just paper work that they don't have to look at a screen for or they can like color in things, um, just anything that gets them off the computer and doing something with their hands or being outside more, like have trying to think of more projects that will bring them outside and away from the computer. Um, because so far, I've just been kind of relying on that in-person Zoom time. And I think that isn't going to be sustainable. 
So just trying to figure out ways that we can uh, spend less time on the computer and more time using our hands and our bodies. Have you had any opportunity to communicate with students one-on-one about remote and how they're doing? And if so, how have they responded to you? Yeah, so I was helping um, the art teacher this past weekend, and her art students um, put together this really amazing um, show that is in Fort Bragg right now. And so I was helping um, the art teacher hang these art pieces, and then students were able to sign up for sort of like, you know, half an hour periods where they and their families would come in to the gallery and get to see all the artwork. So I was able to talk um, with some students there. And, yeah, there were two students who I had had last year in in person. So I knew them pretty well, and I haven't seen them at all this year. And just getting to talk to them um, and sort of hear, like, I mean, these were some serious athletes, so they were really just missing sports and um i think it's hard for high schoolers who don't have especially like younger high schoolers who don't have cars and don't have autonomy they really do just get stuck kind of at home and are at the mercy of you know whatever their parents are doing or um so i just they just seemed like really bummed to not be able to for all the things that they were missing i guess So that was my conversation. This is Lana Cohen here, and that was my conversation with Mae Martin. Like she said, she's a teacher at Mendocino High School, so I wanted to talk with her a little bit to get some of the teacher's perspective on what it's like as remote learning continues. And one of the most interesting parts of the conversation to me was actually not was just that how hard it is to figure out how students are doing because there isn't the time to communicate with students the way teachers normally would. So now we're going to move on to hearing from Michelle Hutchins, and she has been working to coordinate public health information and come up with COVID testing strategies for all of the 12 county school districts. So I would say not an easy feat, plus um, a half a dozen MCOE schools. And Superintendent Hutchins, thank you so much for being with us today. We really appreciate it. Um, And I wanted to start by asking you, Just last week, Mendocino County went back into the purple tier. And what does that tell us about what schooling is going to look like for the remainder of the semester? Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate this opportunity. And um, to answer your question, it really depends on where the school was at in their reopening strategies already. Um, We had three weeks where we were in the red tier, which gave us one week that allowed schools to be able to reopen. Um, We do have some schools that took advantage of that and have were open for, I believe, um, we have one district that opened Monday morning uh, and it was Monday afternoon when the governor reversed our county so quickly back into the purple. Now, a lot of the schools are already serving students. Even in the purple tier, CDPH, or the California Department of Public Health, allowed school districts to be able to serve students that had special needs, students that had poor internet connectivity at home, students that might um, have English as a second language, um, and students that have potentially historical poor academic performance. Um, we're allowed to come onto campus in small groups. So 
so folks in the community may see students coming out of schools with backpacks on and looking like they're they're coming out of class and what they're doing on campus most of them are engaging in their distance learning in a very small stable cohort um, to be able to facilitate their learning and that was allowed under the guidance of california department of public health so most of our school districts are employing that strategy. So we do have kids on campuses, despite being in the purple tier. And can and you just, oh. go ahead? Can you go into a little bit more detail about the exceptions for in-person learning, like the the pods? I spoke to one teacher in Ukiah who's putting together a, a special extracurricular art pod with sixteen people, including herself and her aide, and. And I'm I'm not sure what is allowed with sports. And um, yeah, can you talk just about, go into some detail about the exceptions that are allowed for in-person learning? Yeah, so again, uh, schools are allowed to serve special populations of students. Um, how the school defines that special population of student is really up to the local school district. The, the cohorts need to be no larger than 16 people and that includes teachers and students combined, they must stay stable for a period of four weeks. So that means you can't add new students in if other students leave within that four week period. It's gotta remain stable. Um, so those services are already happening in our schools. Um, what was the second half of your question again? Oh, well, it sounded like this oh, extracurricular yeah, extracurricular yeah. activities and sports. So if a school is employing 100% distance learning and they, they don't have, and a student isn't coming on campus to receive special services, they could come on campus for an extracurricular activity like an art class, as long as it's a small cohort, it's staying stable, um, and it's uh, no more than 16 people. They, they, they are allowed to do that in the purple tier. Sports right now, um, we are waiting for California Interscholastic Foundation to release the guidelines for when schools move back into the red tier. In the purple tier, they're allowed to do skills, skill, like individual skill development only. Um, and they have to limit very much, like they're not allowed to pass a ball back and forth. They can only work with one ball individually with themselves. Um, so there's quite a few limitations actually right now with sports activities. Okay. I want to remind our listeners that you can call in and ask Michelle Hutchins, the superintendent of the Mendocino County Office of Education, some questions also. The phone number to do that is 895-2448. And, um, so, Michelle, I know that you've worked with Dr. Andy Corin, who prepared a document for schools to reopen just a few days when we, for the few days when we went back um, into the red tier. And of course, things are changing very quickly with COVID. So it may be different next semester. But when it's safe to go back to school, and maybe when we go back into the red tier, um, what will reopening look like? And I'm also very interested in how that might differ between school districts. So <clears throat> the the guidance document that was released on November 12th is, is posted on the county's website, and I encourage folks to read it. Um, it's specific to schools. There's both a school order as well as the guidance document. 
The school order requires that school staff participate in surveillance testing. It, it requires the mask wearing of grade three and above. It basically puts into um, sort of a law what the, what the school guidance was from, from California Department of Public Health. It enforces the social distancing requirement, mask wearing, the special disinfecting and cleaning of surfaces, um, the, the um, transfer or the exchange of air between groups coming into a classroom. Um, all of these things are in the order. The guidance document goes into um, description of what a school class might look like. Now, our current guidance under CDPH in the purple tier allows a stable cohort of up to 16. Our, our new uh, or the localized document from Dr. Corin, when we move into the red tier, will allow cohorts of up to 25 and allowing two cohorts to, to potentially mix. So in a secondary school, that would allow a teacher to have two classes of 25 students. Um, and essentially that's like one large kind of stable cohort of 50. So it's one student plus 49 other kids can interact. So if a school district looks at doing a hybrid model where they have four classes of um, 10 students each, then that would fit within the guidance because they're still within their lower than 50 people. So school district to school district, this could look very different. And even elementary to secondary, it might look very different even inside of a district because the different age levels have different challenges with how the schools are designed. An elementary student tends to stay with one teacher all day long. So to split an elementary class in half and provide a hybrid schedule where half of the class is on campus while the other half is receiving distance learning and then switching that up, a school could easily maintain that stable cohort of 50. When you move into a secondary school like a high school, and this is what really what the challenge is for our secondary administrators, is looking at a class schedule of, let's say, a student typically takes six classes in a semester. Six classes of usually 30 to 35 students each. And so that's going to be very difficult to maintain a cohort size of just 50 um, for those schools. So it's challenging, but it's solvable. And we are putting in all the brain power we can to coming up with unique solutions with all of the different school leaders uh, to be able to support them to be able to get students back into the classroom as soon as is safely possible. And I know that you can't talk a lot about specific school districts like we promise I promise not to ask about the bell schedule at Whale Gulch or anything like that since you you've got more of an overview. But we were talking a little bit about some of the cleaning protocols that Fort Bragg has. So can you give some examples of some of the cleaning protocols and the ventilation? Some of the schools, classrooms don't really have windows that open. So, so can you talk about some of the, the more creative ways that you've heard of people solving the, the, um, massive logistical challenge of cleaning and ventilating? 
So very early on, our office, Mendocino County Office of Education, worked with the 12 school districts to collaboratively um, add to our purchase power so that we could purchase both disinfectant um, chemicals as well as like outdoor hand washing stations. Um, some schools have bought um, most of the schools have bought plexiglass that could potentially separate a teacher from a classroom or a secretary from an office um, that has to see visitors. Um, we've installed or worked with schools to, to receive from the state um, personal protective equipment or essential protective equipment for both students and staff. So schools have been supplied with smaller face masks that fit smaller kids as well as face masks that fit adults they've been uh, adults have received face shields um, our school nurses did receive a small handful of n95 masks um, from the state but the schools themselves have gone above and beyond in, pur in purchasing equipment so in addition to that, some of the schools have purchased these sprayers that can, um, in a very short amount of time, spray a disinfectant that would eliminate the virus from surfaces. Doesn't eliminate any potential virus in the air. And so Dr. Corrin has recommended that windows be open as much as possible. And in classrooms that don't have windows, that you try to get the air out of the classroom more so than just bringing air into the classroom. Ideally, we'd like to see our classrooms have a MERV 13 or a HEPA level filtration, but most of our hospitals may not even be equipped with that level of filtration. So it's, it's not a requirement. Um, but, ex you know, making sure that the air is exchanged in between groups of students is is what the um, public health officer is asking us to do. And how far is the CARES Act funding going towards helping school districts stock up on all the supplies that they need and the, the extra staffing and child care? And the list just seems to go on and on. It's really not enough to be able to do what we're asked to do. Um, the CARES Act funding must be expended by school districts by the end of this December. So they don't have dollars past uh, December to support with extra staffing, which is really going to be necessary to meet those lower class sizes and to be able to do a true hybrid learning plan. Um, so it's not enough. The short answer. <laughs> so without that extra funding um, to have staff to create smaller class sizes, like I said, it's going to be really difficult, especially with high school students. Without that extra funding, do you imagine that it would be possible at all to move from remote to in-person learning for secondary education? You know, we're creative beings. When you put the power of creative thought and intellect together and you do that collectively with your staff and, and your, um, you know, the communities you serve, I believe we're going to see solutions. There, there are many schools around ca California that have opened in the red tier with a high school. And so it's, it's really, um, just putting that collective thought together, not giving up, not getting fr too frustrated too quickly, and continuing to think through the problem. I'm an optimist, as you can kind of tell, <laughs> so I believe in the power of thought collectively. So during that one week when we were in the red tier, 
Were there any solutions that you were particularly excited about? Anything that you talked about with school districts and teachers that would help implement in-person or hybrid learning? Um, schools, schools have been planning really since June for this hybrid reopening process. Um, I think excited. Um, you know, we really were just sort of were talking through the, the plans that they had created and trying to make sure that staff and community really felt confident in those plans moving forward. Um, there was nothing really that stands out during that week that was uh, noteworthy, I would say. And one thing that, that I've been hearing a lot is that teachers are concerned about um, teaching in person and from a distance and at the same time and coming up with all these different systems that they're supposed to implement simultaneously, like they're supposed to be live and on Zoom for two different cohorts at the same time. So um, aside from, from being able to clone teachers, how is that going to work logistically? You know, different school districts are going to handle that differently. Your smaller school districts are going to have a whole uh, harder time dealing with that than your larger. Some of the school districts are taking their, their more at-risk staff, their older staff or staff with other medical conditions or pr prior medical conditions, and they're placing those staff in charge of the distance learning component of the school and then putting the more younger and healthier staff in um in the classroom. Some districts are actually asking teachers to teach simultaneously with in-person and distance learning students at the same time. There are methods where that works. It's a struggle. It's hard. But I think the, the hardest solution really is asking a teacher to you know, have the online and, and the in-person and not have it be synchronous um, because they're, they're basically doubling their workload. So uh, teachers, educators, administrators, they all need a great big hug right now because it is hard. Yeah, maybe a, a virtual hug. <laughs> yeah, virtual, yeah, that's very well said. <laughs> Yeah, it sounds like there are a lot of challenges. I mean, of course, we know that this is especially hard for teachers and everybody involved in the education field. When I was talking with Mae Martin, a teacher at Mendocino High School, she said that she felt it was really hard for students to be on the computers all the time. And it was really hard for teachers, too, that just that computer time is so exhausting. Are there ways that you've heard of in other school districts that teachers are making an effort to have more hands-on activities for students so that they have less screen time? You know, those examples exist all over the state. They do. Um, some school districts are doing a short live in-person meeting that is only a 30-minute live moment for the classes and then doing the asynchronous learning, which could be project-based or could be computer-based, um, depending on the curriculum. Uh, overall, it's uh, not an easy challenge because you're oftentimes the, the more 
robust teaching strategies are having kids work together to solve a problem. And that's difficult to do online. Um, when we, uh, it's difficult to do online without the collaborative nature of the teacher involved to make sure that the work stays focused. When you have a classroom of students and you break them up into small groups in your classroom, you can maneuver around and make sure that they're staying on task. It's more difficult to do that in an online environment. Um, but th there are examples and, and models of how schools can operate. But it's, it's, uh, it's difficult for a school to shift directions mid-semester, especially at a high school level. Um, a lot, you know, there's, there, the high school has a very specific scope and sequence that students need to get through in order to have those credits properly assigned. And they need those credits in order to graduate or to apply to a university or, or some other secondary education. And uh, um, so, it's it's a challenge um, because they can't deviate necessarily and they have to make sure the students get through that entire curriculum by the end of that semester. So it's a challenge. Well, do you have any parting words in the last minute or so of our show, Superintendent Hutchins? Um, I guess I would ask that the community please be very patient with your school leaders and, and the teachers in our schools. The schools have been given an unprecedented challenge. They're being asked to educate your children and, and with, with very large constraints. And I know it's difficult on us as parents that are trying to work to see that our students' schedule may only be in person for two or three hours a day and maybe only two days a week. The school's hands are tied in terms of that. They really do not have a lot of options of how to bring students safely in person back. Because of the social distancing requirement, our schools are set up to be kids close next to each other and packed in tight. So it's, it's a challenge. So please be patient with them. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Michelle Hutchins, Superintendent of the Mendocino County Office of Education, sharing the updates on education in the purple tier. And in the first half of our show, we heard from Dr. William Miller, the Chief of Staff at the Adventist Health Mendocino Coast Hospital. Um, it's been a really great show with, with both of our interviews, and have a great rest of your day. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Okay.